I'm Scott Warner, president of the Culinary Historians of Chicago, and good evening and welcome to our Zoominar tonight on the potatoes. And before we put our program in the fryer, I want to tell you about our upcoming <laughs> Zoom. You knew he would do that. I do, yes. I was waiting for that. <laughs> And on to today's program, 16,000 years of global potato history with Raghavan Iyer, who is one of our nation's most esteemed cookbook authors and acclaimed cooking teachers, and has the multiple James Beard Award winner to prove it. He's also past president of the International Association of Culinary Professionals. His latest book, if you can see it, Smashed, mashed, boiled, and baked. I found a it. celebration of potatoes and 75 irresistible recipes. The recipes look great, and Kathy will send a link tomorrow. Uh, well, she sent a link to some of the recipes already, and she's going to send a link tomorrow to if if, if you want to order the book. Uh, let's see one one comment, Raghavan. For this pandemic time, it would have been great if you had included a recipe for couch potatoes. Can you hear me? Yeah, I heard you, Scott, yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Well, anyway, on that unmuted note, uh, Raghavan, would you let the spud begin? <laughs> yes, it, it is. It, it's going to be a spud show. Um, well, it's the first time I'm, I'm doing a, a Zoom talk about, about, you know, potatoes and so um what i will plan on doing is you know around for about 40 or so minutes i'm going to uh, talk about potatoes the history the lore we'll talk about recipes i'll talk about all kinds of potatoes and so and then after that i'll open it up for questions i guess so um then in between i think i'm going to have kathy actually when i'm talking about particular recipes i'll have her play a video, a demo of um, one of the uh, recipes from the book that I did, uh, a couple of video segments for the Splendid Table. And so uh, we'll play one of them so you'll have at least, you know, I know that there's no sampling from my side, but it'll be one of the recipes. And so I should be drinking vodka, but I'm not. I'm drinking gin instead. So. Um, um, anyway, so um, I think when you think about, you know, this is one of those books that, uh, you know, people always say, you know, why did you do a book about potatoes? And I'm thinking, gosh, why not? Because this is one of those, you know, dishes that I, I uh, grew up on. And it is, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting. This is my, that was my sixth book that I wrote. Every time I write a cookbook, I always find myself actually always doing potato recipes first because it's such a passion of mine. And I literally, even to this day, I have to have potatoes um, that um, I um, eat, you know, at least one meal, if not a couple of meals, if I can wing it. And it is... Um, you know, so when I got the opportunity, and I've always said this is one of this was one of the easiest proposals I could 
I could pitch and sell. And um, this is my, that was my sixth book, but that was my third book with Workman Publishing. And so um, Workman under their own banner, they do only four cookbooks a year or so. Um, and when I was having dinner with um, the editor, um, Suzanne Rafer in New York a while ago, and uh, we had gone to a Spanish tapas restaurant. And so, you know, so one of the dishes that, you know, we had shared was um, patatas bravas, which is one of their signature dishes, which are these beautiful, you know, crispy pan-fried potatoes that served with a, or sometimes they're bathed with a, uh, with a sauce that's done with tomatoes and vinegar and uh, smoked paprika. So, you know, you've got, it's a very, very addictive dish. And so we were chatting and I said, gee, Suzanne, I said, how about a book about potatoes? And she goes, sold. <laughs> they had never done a book about potatoes. And so, uh, and I've always said, there's a reason why this is the fourth uh, largest crop in the world because uh, uh, it, it lends itself to, um, you know, being so versatile and it's so pervasive and it's, uh, you know, one of those crops that people can grow multiple crops a year, you know, and so uh, it is, and people forget that it's, it's actually an extremely nutritious vegetable and uh, it's always gotten a bad rap, you know, and it's like, oh, carbs, carbs, you know, but I've always said, this is one of those carbs that are complex carbohydrates. And so it's very essential for your body. And in terms of other nutrients, uh, it's got um, really some incredible nutrients in there. So in terms of a, of a complete meal in many ways, uh, a potato has um, everything that you need. And so um, uh, growing up, I, you know, I remember you know, being the youngest child of a large family. My mother would always ask me, you know, what do I want for a snack? And so, um, and I would always tell her, you know, something with potatoes. And at some point she goes, why even bother asking you? Because it's the same damn answer every time. So, <laughs> uh, but I used to love, it was a very odd, weird way, the way she would make uh, French fries. You know, we used to, we call them growing up, we called them potato chips which is the legacy left behind by the, by the British. And so, um, and she would cut them in the size of, um, you know, your conventional French fries. And sometimes she would just, you know, cut them in half and then cut them into thin slices. But the way she used to cook them, and now I think back, you know, I mean, I've got not, you know, I have a degree in chemistry and I have a degree in hotel restaurant management. And so I think back and I think, oh, my God, Mom, I mean, that's the worst thing you could ever do to what she did, the way you used to cook the potatoes. And she would, um, you know how conventionally when you fry the potatoes, you take them out of the oil and you salt the potatoes outside. But she would actually salt the potatoes in the oil and she would throw in salt right into the oil. And, of course, you know, I mean, you know what that does to the oil and salt. It, uh, you can't use it very often. And that's one of the reasons why she wouldn't do it all the time because her oil would be ruined. And I'm thinking, yeah, of course your oil is ruined because you're salting the oil and that's what, that's not what you should be doing. So, but of course, you know, I mean, I was young and stupid back then. So now I'm old and stupid. So, you know, it's, uh, um, so that's really, that was my, my, my exposure to it. And so I, you know, the, 
introduction to the book, the title of the chapter is called A Deep-Rooted Obsession. And so, yes, it's not conventionally, it's not a root, but it's a tuber. And so uh, um, I really wanted to sort of look at a very unusual way of looking at the world of potatoes and why it was, you know, the fourth largest crop and where did it begin and, you know, its humble origins and, um, you know, it's a very interesting route. I mean, you look at, oftentimes when I, when I research a book, you know, something like this, you know, I always, in fact, about 12 years ago, I was in Chicago and I came to um, um, the culinary historians group in Chicago and I spoke about, you know, um, uh, about the world of curries and, you know, we talked about the curry timeline and the curry history and so, it's sort of the similarly is what I did with um, the world of potatoes. And, you know, you traced it back uh, 16,000 years ago when, you know, they initially had evidence of, of humans settling in, um, um, uh, you know, in the American uh, soil and, um, you know, and how. But I've always said potatoes really didn't have its moment in the sun or under the sun um, until the um, um, Andean farmers way back in 10,000 BC is when they really figured out how to grow and cultivate potatoes in larger scale. And so uh, about 14,000 years ago, um, um, they had evidence of about 235 species of potatoes that they could actually find, but it's the Andes, uh, the Andean farmers who actually figured out how to um, grow them and cultivate them and you know, come up with, um, with all of these incredible varieties of potatoes. And so, um, so when I actually um, uh, was researching the book, I had the opportunity to go visit uh, a um, potato scientist in um, Canada, and she was, uh, uh, I believe she was based in New Brunswick, um, which is, they have one of the potato museums there, and they coordinate their efforts with two or three other muse museums that are dedicated to the world of potatoes around the world. One is in Spain, and I forget where the third one is, but, but when I was talking to the scientists, I really wanted to sort of get... Um, you know, her to talk about, you know, like the birds and the bees of, of coming up with potato varietals because I really didn't know what it took. And I was just blown away by the amount of, uh, you know, effort and the information that they gave me. And so in the introduction to the book, I have her story and it's, it's a boxed story. And I, and, and I call her the potato whisperer because, um, she truly had a passion that, you know, and within that short one or two hours, she, you know, walked me through what it takes to come up with a varietal, which can take as much as 10 years before you would see uh, a varietal come into the marketplace. And uh, I was just blown away by that. And so, and then, you know, when I went back and did all the history and it's like, yeah, that makes sense why they have to be very, very, careful why, um, 
you know, when they do come up with a varietal and, you know, some of the, obviously the most popular varietals now that you see are your, you know, the workhorse of the potato world, which is your Russet Burbank. And then I think in more recent years, you see the success of the Yukon gold potatoes, which are, you know, sort of in the middle of the line. And so, uh, but we'll come back to the potato varietals uh, a little bit later. So, um, so I wanted to, um, you know, talk a little bit about, um, about the history. So um, I've, I've pulled um, the history document in my computer. So if you see me looking up and reading something, that's what I'm reading it out of. So, but around 1200 BC was when the Incas, um, um, you know, they, um, they finally got themselves established in a way. And so, um, and um, they expanded to um, Southern Colombia and, you know, it looked at all of a sudden they had a population of about nine to 15 million people of diverse backgrounds. And so, and the most important crop in the Inca empire uh, was potatoes, which they called papas. Um, and um, uh, so that's, you know, you, then you started to see, and of course, you know, around um, 1492, um, uh, you know, good old Christopher Columbus, I mean, he, um, um, he ended up tasting sweet potatoes in the Caribbean islands and called them batatas, which is interestingly um, a word in Marathi, one of the languages that is spoken in India, and the word batatas in Marathi is a word for potatoes. But, you know, in um, the Caribbean islands, um, they called them batatas, but they were sweet potatoes, which, as you know, is not the same member as the potato family. Uh, your sweet potatoes come from the morning glory family, and your Potatoes are your nightshade group of family of vegetables, tomatoes, sweet peppers, and so on. And so, um, um, so anyway, so he mistakenly, of course, you know, he thought the sweet potatoes were the same as regular potatoes. And so, unfortunately, he screwed up once again. And, uh, um, and then you start to see, you know, when you look at the, um, the travel of these potatoes from South America, they actually went to Europe and then they came back to North America. And then of course, from there, then they spread to the rest of the world. And so uh, it was sort of an interesting uh, history how it went to, um, one of the things that I really found interesting was, um, 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 and this is again, we are still um, in the BC era where, um, you looked at the late 1500s, you know, when the Spanish sailors uh, were traveling from South America to Europe, um, they had a lot of potatoes on board. And, uh, but they did not bring them to trade. They actually um, brought them for their own personal consumption. And at some point, they ended up dumping the potatoes uh, that they did not eat um, in some of the uh, European seaports. And so what they considered garbage was picked up by the locals who then began growing potatoes. And so, um, so that was an interesting uh, you know, tidbit when some person's garbage ended up really changing the, uh, the way of the world and how you know, we looked at potatoes. Um, the first Englishman that actually uh, 
wrote about uh, uh, patatas, you know, which is different than patatas with a B. Um, and um, uh, he, um, um, you know, was he, he, he was calling them the most delicate roots that he has ever eaten. And so he said they could uh, not be easily grown in the British Isles at that time. Um, but then by 1576, there was a lot of trade between England and the Iberian Peninsula where, you know, then you started to see um, some of this come into play. And then, you know, 1570, Spain engaged in war. Um, and um, they had a you know, supply line going from Spain through Italy, Germany, France, and Belgium. Um, and the Spanish armies brought potatoes with them and farmers along the supply line grew potatoes to sell to the military. Um, and so that's how you saw some of this um, come into fruition. Um, Italy actually grew potatoes in, uh, around that time and they called them truffles, you know, because they were under the ground. And so uh, the correct uh, Italian word was um, Taratufili, and um, but it was a year after um, that when you um, when there was a Jesuit priest um, that actually went uh, he was sent to Peru from Spain, and then he began making uh, extensive notes about his observation, uh, and that's when you started to see sort of the first publicized evidence of when he talked about potatoes and uh, how he said that these were the, this was the main food of Indians and uh, this was back in 1590. And, um, and then you started to see the first reference of a common potato was in a hospital uh, in Ceballe, Spain. And, uh, and then um, uh, you, you know, there was the first evidence of growing potatoes in the Canary Islands at that time. And that was the stopping point for ships that sailed to and from the Americas. And so, uh, um, and then St. Francis Drake came into the picture and then he started, uh, you know, getting into the world of bordering potatoes from the natives. And so, uh, and then some of the historians actually gave him credit for introducing potatoes to Northern Europe. Um, but there was some evidence that it was unlikely that the potatoes you picked up in Chile actually lasted that long. And so, you know, there was some question about whether there was any truth to that. Um, the English actually were also one of the first ones that, uh, especially an English writer by the name of William Harrison claimed that potatoes were an aphrodisiac. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why, um, you know, they, they talked about potatoes were never mentioned in the Bible because of its aphrodisiac qualities. And so um, um, it was one of the main reasons why they were considered to be taboo food. Um, and, uh, but the first European potato recipes actually appeared in a letter way back in 1581, um, where they talked about, you know, boiling potatoes and cooking them in butter. What's interesting is when you look at Peru and when you look at, uh, you know, some of the older civilizations in South America, they did not have the technique of, uh, of deep frying potatoes because that was, you know, 
using a lot of oil for something like that was considered uh, to be a waste. And so the concept of frying potatoes came much later and they were primarily in, in um, Europe that you started to see the concept of frying potatoes and olive oil. And um, the French actually were the first ones who perfected uh, uh, the mastery of, um, you know, coming up with um, the best French fries. And so we'll talk about, you know, what really makes the perfect French fry a little bit later on. So, so that comes a little bit later um, in the picture. Uh, Germany starts to grow potatoes later on. Uh, and then Switzerland, of course, and France. Um, and an interesting thing about, um, you know, you talk about, you know, I'm going to make a reference to Shakespeare. Um, and your speaker coming up next, uh, next time for that. But Shakespeare, in when he wrote The Merry Wives of Windsor, um, he had a line in the book which said, let the sky rain potatoes. Another reference to their aphrodisiac qualities. Um, but of course, you know, until that point in time, all the references in literature were for sweet potatoes, but the sweet potatoes were considered aphrodisiac on the Caribbean islands. And so, um, so that's where you see this sort of uh, wave go through uh, different cultures. Uh, and, um, and then you started to see um, uh, how potatoes took um, a very strong foothold, especially in Ireland, you know. Um, and um, they, um, that was a big part of the diet. The, during the heyday, just before the blight hit Ireland, during the heyday, the average Irish male, especially the, Irish, the average Irish male farmer ate about 15 pounds of potatoes a day. And that was their main source of nutrients and everything else. And, you know, the rest of the family consumed on an average about five pounds of potatoes. And so it became a very, very integral part of their diet. And so you can understand when you look at the importance of potatoes, how when something like that um, hit Ireland, I mean, how it, it, it basically annihilated millions of people that thrived and, you know, that was their main source of sustenance. And so, uh, and in fact, it was ironically the Irish when they um, migrated and, and came to uh, the northeastern part of the United States when they uh, settled here, they were the ones who actually started growing potatoes and um, in larger amounts. And so that's when you started to see potatoes being more of an influence um, here in the United States. Um, so, uh, let me see if I'm doing time, okay, doing okay. Um, what was, what I found interesting about potatoes, uh, and especially um, in France, um, a lot of the success and, uh, oh, before we get to France, one of the things I wanted to talk about was how um, in the um, uh, early 1700s, this is AD now, uh, potatoes were starting to be cultivated by Buddhist monks in Bhutan and Nepal. And so, uh, but the potatoes were introduced to that part of the world, to China and to India around um, the late um, uh, 
16, early 17th century, I think. Um, and so, you know, again, this is a result of um, the trade between the Spanish settlers and also when the Portuguese came and, you know, the, the Jesuit priests came and settled. And so that's when we were introduced to the world of potatoes, along with chilies and tomatoes, which I think single-handedly changed the culinary topography in that part of the world. And so, uh, and it's to this day when I was when I was researching and coming up with ideas for recipes, I remember talking to a master chef um, from China, and so I was through an interpreter, you know, when I was asking him about the role of potatoes in his well, he was growing up and he goes, you know, they never ate potatoes at home because it was considered to be poor man's food. And, you know, so, um, and when China, and right now, the two biggest countries in the world that are the lead producers of potatoes are India and China. And um, the Chinese government wanted, you know, their people to actually eat more and more potatoes. And so they were forcing and providing incentives to a lot of these master chefs in China and in restaurants to actually start coming up with these, you know, recipes that conventionally were done with other things. It's like, you know, come up with something that are done with potatoes so people are consuming more and more of that. So, uh, but, but in, in, the, in the confines of the home kitchen, they always said, you know, potatoes were never a player um, because it was considered poor man's food. And so on the flip side of it in India, having lived there for 21 years, I mean, to us, that was the reason why potatoes were so popular and uh, because of, you know, the versatility of it and the diversity that you can, you know, come up with all these amazing dishes with potatoes because it's a perfect backdrop for capturing some of the spices and the herbs that we used in our cooking. And so, and plus it was very cheap. I mean, you know, I grew up in a home that were not very wealthy. So to, that was one thing that we had every day was potatoes because they were cheap and they were healthy and they were, you know, we could do some amazing things with it. And so, uh, uh, so, so to me, that was exactly the reason why you saw potatoes took such a strong um, foothold in our culture because they were so um, accessible. So, so that was sort of an interesting uh, way to look how different parts of the world do look at uh, do look at the world of potatoes and so in many ways. Um, you know, back in uh, the late 1700s. Um, uh, there was a well-known French pharmacist by the name of uh, Parmentier who actually um, um, fought in the French army. And so, so when he went um, back to France, you know, and he wanted to sort of, um, he was so bowled over by, when he was in Germany, he was so bowled over by, um, you know, potatoes because there, a lot of the prisoners, primarily, that was the main source of, diet and so when he survived his imprisonment it was because of the potato and so he also understood as a pharmacist the nutritional value of the potatoes and so he wanted to bring it back to France and you know, do some really great things with it and so one of the stories that went was that um, 
1773, he published a paper on potatoes and he was um, uh, appointed as the pharmacist at the Hotel des Invalides in Paris. And so, you know, his potato campaign was becoming more and more important and passionate. And one of the stories was that uh, during his potato campaign, he met uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was in Paris trying to drum up some French support of the American War for independence. And then Franklin at that time had suggested to Balmontier to, uh, to create a dinner for prominent Frenchmen. Um, and all the courses, right from soup to dessert, uh, was made from potatoes, and so that's what he did. And so um, uh, and he also did a fish dish made from potatoes. And, uh, and of course, you know, he did uh, uh, all the liquor and the toasting that was done was done with potato vodka. So, uh, and, um, and so that's how he sort of became more and more popular. Uh, and the other interesting thing that I thought that was smart in doing was when he, um, sort of became a publicity director for potatoes and wanted to find ways to get them noticed and used. And so when he talked to Louis the 16th and his queen, Marie Antoinette, um, and you know, and so, you know, he, he, he talked them into wearing uh, the sweet uh, smelling potato flowers, the buds on their lapels. And so, so that became sort of like a fashion statement and you know, people started to notice it and so the other thing which i thought he was quite smart in doing was he um wanted the peasants to actually eat more potatoes and to grow them and so what he used to do was he would um, um during when napoleon took power he gave pamonti the legion of honor and named him to direct the health services and finance several of, of his potato projects. And one of the things that he did was, um, um, you know, he, he started having all these little plots of potatoes that he grew and he created mystery around it by having guards, you know, sort of guard them. And so it's like, and I think the peasants when they, um, you know, of course, I mean, they wanted something that <laughs> was being guarded with all these guards and so, and of course, you know, they looked the other way. And so eventually that's how um, the potatoes, um, you know, they stole these potatoes and they ended up um, planting them and that's how potatoes became more, more popular. And so um, truly he was considered like the godfather of the potato world, I guess. And so it's too bad I wasn't alive at that time because I think I would have ended up working for him, so. <laughs> um, but that was, um, um, uh, but you also look at, you know, um, what I found interesting was one of the other key players in, in introducing potatoes to some parts of the world, the Dutch, you know, when they went to Java in Indonesia, you know, you look at, obviously that's where, um, the mace and the nutmeg um, trees were there. And so he introduced, uh, the Dutch introduced the potatoes to Java. And so that's why they called it the Dutch potato. And so, um, and then um, uh, from there it went on to Russia. And uh, <laughs> so it was sort of a circuitous, you know, 
path, how it went to all of these countries and how these countries eventually, they ended up taking those potatoes and um, creating recipes that, you know, sort of, it filled in a place that the meats normally would, because that was not accessible to a lot of people, but potatoes, which were cheaper, were. And so, you know, so it sort of took on the role of a, of a, of a main course, a center of the plate definition in many ways. And so, um, and so that's why you started to see it becoming more and more and more popular. But I think by sheer volume alone, you know, by the size of the population in India and China, uh, the kind of potatoes that they grow. And unfortunately, the most, the prevalent variety of potato was the one that was similar to Russian Burbank. Um, and so now looking at, you know, when, when I, in the book I talk about, I, I've divided the book into, you know, two groups of potatoes. Um, flowery potatoes and waxy potatoes. Um, and so um, when I looked at the flowery world of potatoes, which is high starch, low moisture, um, you look at potatoes like the Russian Burbank, you know, and what we typically call them as white potatoes. So I've always said, you know, when you're cooking, and that's the biggest mistake people make, you know, when you're cooking potatoes, it's the technique of cooking those potatoes that really should drive the variety of potato that you're using. So in other words, if I'm wanting, you know, if I'm making French fries, if I'm making potatoes baked in the oven or, you know, something that's going to require a high starch content, of course, then, you know, you want to go to a potato like the Burbank potato, the russet potato. Um, but if you are looking for potatoes that are, you know, being boiled, you know, boilers, uh, uh, your waxy potatoes, which are high in moisture and low in starch, they hold their shape much better together. And so, uh, you know, good potato salad, for instance, is really, that's where you're going to look at, you know, the red potatoes or um, a lot of the fingerling potatoes usually fall under that category of having high moisture and low starch. And so the Yukon gold potato, which was one of the most successful potatoes that were recently bred, um, were potatoes that were bred primarily to be middle of the line so that it could be more of your generic potato, which was bred for an average starch and moisture content. So that could be pretty much used for anything whether you're making baked potatoes or whether you're making um, a potato salad, for instance. And so um, that was one of the main reasons. And it became very popular. So, um, And some varieties of potatoes will never be grown outside of uh, Peru because their soil conditions are ideal for that. Uh, and so you will never see, the, unless you know, they've come up with technology where they can create um, those potatoes that would be ideal for multiple soil conditions. And so, um, so that I thought is, um, is always, uh, as a teacher, when I would travel and teach, that's the biggest question people always ask me, how do you know what potato to use when? 
And, you know, we always sometimes we just look at what's in our vegetable bin and say, oh, you know, I've got, I feel like hash browns, you know, and I'm going to use red potatoes. And you're not going to get the best hash browns with red potatoes. You're going to get the best hash browns with Brussels potatoes. And so, um, so I think the technique of cooking those potatoes really is what's going to draw you to use um, the, the perfect variety of potato that you can actually um, that you can actually get. Um, it's been about 45 minutes, so I think um, before we break for questions, um, Kathy, would you mind playing that? Um, uh, this is a recipe from the book, uh, which I thought would be a good visual um, way for you to actually, uh, I think you might want to go on with the start. There we go. And this was filmed by the Splendid Table. And, uh, and this is actually um, uh, tea-infused potatoes, uh, which brings in flavors from uh, China. Uh, and so that's what that um, uh, cooking demo segment is about. So and it's about three and a half minute segment. So we'll have Kathy play that so you get a chance to you know, get your appetite going. And uh, if you haven't had dinner, I apologize because this will make you hungry. So cooking. Learning to cook didn't enter the picture until he came to America to study and longing for those tastes of family and home, he began to cook. I've always said I learned to cook the Indian way in a foreign land. I came to the U.S. 34 years ago not knowing how to cook, especially the Indian way. You know, I had my mother's and my sister's and my grandmother's flavors in my memory bank. Going to the grocery store was an eye-opening experience for me because I didn't recognize 90% of the ingredients in there. But I remember very distinctly there was this one can of curry powder which sort of jumped right out and I, you know, I, I picked up the can and I looked in the back and it said, you know, this magically transports you to India and all of that. Well, this is my ticket. And I made it and I literally cried because it was... A, god-awful, B, I was homesick, and C, I thought, well, this is not what I grew up with. We're going to do uh, tea-infused new potatoes that are going to be tossed with butter that's been flavored with fresh ginger. And then we're going to combine all of that with Chinese five-spice powder and cayenne. It's sort of like a warm potato salad with attitude. Black tea leaves is what we use, and that gives it a very underlying bitterness, which is a very key essential taste element in Chinese cooking, or any kind of cooking for that matter. We've got these potatoes in this very, very dark brewed tea. We're going to cover that and let it steep until the potato is tender. And the butter, once it melts and it starts to foam a little bit, before we go ahead and add the ginger to it. The aroma is a beautiful signal in telling you that the ginger is cooking without blackening. It's very, very lightly browned. When you think about cooking with tea, you know, it's such an odd concept in the Western world. But tea is such a big part of Asia. Think about what happens with barbecuing and grilling in this country, and they have all these different kinds of hickory chips and so on that go with it. So in some ways, tea sort of has that same influence the uh, ginger that's been lightly browned in the butter. I'm going to add to that a couple of teaspoons of the Chinese five spice powder. The heat in that pan is just enough to cook those spices without burning. And then we're going to take also the scallions. You can see the colors come through beautifully well. To me, the element that really ties it all together is some fresh squeezed lemon juice. 
people always say, I mean, what is your passion with potatoes? And I, I always say it's like a maniacal passion. This passion has been there ever since I was born. Potato was this untouched easel. And to me, that really is the beauty of working with potatoes. It's very malleable. It was just a natural extension for me. Now I cannot think about a meal without potatoes, truth be told. It's very nutritious. You can actually do potatoes 365 days a year with very, very distinct uh, recipes. Mm. It is so addictive. The little tea that's in there comes through and it's all beautifully balanced with the acidity from the uh, lemon juice. And the five spice powder is very subtle in the back. And the cayenne is very, very mellow, but the combination of it is dynamite with the ginger and the scallions. If I feel like the doctor says, man, you have to cut down on your carbs, I'd say, you know what, I'd rather go die. I'd die happy. <laughs> Ask the question, how much tea and how much water? Um, well, the recipe is in the book, so if you give me a second, let me see if I can pull up that recipe and, and um, see if I can tell you. Um, so there's basically enough water to cover the potatoes, which is probably a pound of potatoes, I think. Um, okay, I have, I got in four cups of water, I've got uh, a quarter cup of black tea leaves, or you could use four tea bags. Or you could use more if you want it a little bit stronger. Um, but if you're using loose tea, I've got about a quarter of a cup of black tea leaves in there. So obviously the more assertive the tea leaves, the more flavor it's gonna to provide to the potato. And again, you're looking for that underlying little bitterness that comes with it. And it's very simple, it's very quick. And so, and that is for two pounds of, um, of new potatoes. Now, remember, there's a difference between new potatoes and small potatoes. The new potatoes truly are potatoes that are the first crop that is picked before they mature and they become bigger. So those truly are the new potatoes. The skin is very thin and they are small and you, know, you scrub them and you clean them, clean them out. And I mean, you know, that's, you don't want to clutter them with a lot of flavors. And so those are true new potatoes. A lot of times in grocery stores, these little small potatoes are, or B-sized potatoes are mislabeled as new potatoes, but they're just small potatoes. They're not new potatoes. Um, so it does, especially I think, um, we should be hopefully seeing soon in the farmer's markets. I know that Chicago has, you guys have a beautiful farmer's market, uh, that uh, you'll start to see these new potatoes uh, at the farmer's market and you know, at the grocery stores as well. So uh, those I think are best, uh, best done this way. So, okay, questions. If you wish to unmute yourself, you can and ask your may, question. May I ask a question? Yes. Yeah. Um, I've heard and you mentioned very briefly that <clears throat> potatoes went from South America to the old world and then back to North America, um, mm -hmm. short of one that I know of. But mm -hmm. um, can you comment about that migration of tomatoes or potatoes? Did it come via colonial times during waves of migration or can you tell me anything uh, about 
Yeah. Um, the route was basically determined by the route of the, the traders and the settlers and the um, Jesuit priests, for instance, who went to these different countries to um, convert them. And, um, and so, of course, you know, for their own travels with them, they brought along uh, the potatoes. So that was the main reason that you started to see that route happening. And so uh, it doesn't necessarily follow the spice route or the silk route because that was different because with the spice route, for instance, the spice, the spice route, for instance, started in, you know, for instance, you go to Southwestern India and that sort of was the epicenter of the spice route. And then when the colonies came and, you know, when the British came and the Portuguese came, um, as well. So a lot of that was a reverse traveling where they took spices and they went to the rest of the world. Uh, but, but potatoes, for instance, came back or initially before they went, they actually came from South America through those traders and the settlers in similar routes because that was the route that was created for the trade. And so when the spice route happened on the reverse side. Uh, that's why you started to see, but those cultures were, that's how they were introduced to um, the potato was, uh, was because of that, that particular reason why they were there. Thank you. Just, okay. I, I have a question. Mm -hmm. uh, did I hear that correctly? Uh, you said Irish laborers were eating about 15 pounds of potatoes a day? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The men were, yes. The average male farmer. It's a lot of potatoes, yeah. <laughs> but you know, I mean, if you think about it, that was their main and only source of nutrition, right? I mean, everything primarily was dependent on, so the more they ate, you know, the, they could continue to work the fields and uh, it's not like they had access to all of these other things. And so if they were privy to meat, it was something that was on rare occasion. It wasn't something that was a part of their everyday meal. And so, uh, um, so in terms of, of sure survival, I mean, volume was the key. But the more they ate, the more energy they got and the more nutrition they had to, to I have I have a 10 pound uh, bag of potatoes here. I can't imagine eating that much volume <laughs> in a day. Jeffrey, I can help you, it's very easy. <laughs> to me, it's, you know, I, 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 I mean, I don't go for so much, but I would say I've known, not when I was testing the book, but I've, known, I've, I've, I've been known to go through about you know, five pounds every two days or so, two, three wow. days, so. Uh, a friend. I'm sorry? A friend of mine immigrated to the States from Italy um, in the in the 60s, and her father was a farmer. And she said every morning he'd get up with the sun, and he'd work for two or three hours in the field, and he'd come home and for breakfast would eat five to six pounds of pasta for breakfast. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's a lot of calories for a lot of work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's physical labor, right? I mean, you are on your feet, you're under the hot sun, and you are working, and you need you need energy. That's what 
you know, when you think about complex carbohydrates, it converts starch, not to simple sugars, but it converts them into complex carbohydrates, uh, which is your source of energy. So um, that's one of the reasons why eating something with, you know, which has, which are complex carbohydrates, you're, you're getting your body convert them to energy, not sugar. Uh, so uh, I, I can, you know, I don't think twice about, by the way, and again, you, you see this in quite a few cultures where we don't think twice about combining carbohydrates with carbohydrates. I mean, you know, I grew up and I still, even four days ago, I mean, I made myself potato sandwiches. So you take bread and you, you know, there's these, in fact, I think there's recipe in the book as well, where I take, um, you take potatoes and you mash them and you season them in whatever part of the country you're coming from and you dip them in a chickpea flour batter and you fry them golden brown and you've got this crispy exterior, you know, you put all these spices in and you, you shove them between slices of bread and even as a sandwich, you know, it's like, okay, I'm making myself hungry because I haven't had dinner yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, we don't think twice about, 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 you know, bread with potatoes. And so, well, if you think about, you know, you're going back to somebody mentioned Italy, you know, and one of the most, common pasta dishes that you find is, you know, pasta that's tossed with, um, with red potatoes and, um, uh, you know, they have fresh herbs in there and lime and all of that. So, but it is so flavorful. I've, you know, I put, uh, potatoes on pizzas as well, you know, so I think, uh, it is such a versatile crop for a reason. So, um, uh, it certainly makes a lot of sense. I have a question regarding um, solanin. Yes, the um, um, the one that's considered why people say you can't eat potatoes raw. Yes, go ahead. So um, with uh, people of uh, Chinese uh, background like myself, mm -hmm. uh, we've discovered that if we uh, if we overdose on solanin, there's a point where it all of a sudden triggers high blood pressure. And it's mm. not noticed if you're eating it gradually, but when the, the, apparently the, our bodies can only excrete it at the rate of 1% a month, the solanin. Mm. Mm -hmm. So uh, at some point it becomes uh, poisonous and we have mm -hmm. huge high blood spikes, which I've mm -hmm. had personally. So, mm -hmm. but I, I found that um, Europeans, don't have that um, problem with solanin. Mm. So I was wondering, my question is, are there some potatoes that have less solanin uh, or, you know, like, I also want to make sure I can see the solanin. Uh, so I'm skeptical of eating any dark uh, potatoes. Yeah, I, I think one of the telltale signs is when, you know, you're, you get that greenish hue on the potatoes. Um, it's obviously it's more visible with you know lighter colored potatoes, and so that's usually a telltale sign that you're starting to see that. So that's obviously one of the reasons why you know raw potatoes are not um, edible because of that reason, and neither are the potato leaves for that matter. Um, but what's interesting is sweet potatoes, which is not part of the potato family, which is part of the morning glory family their leaves are perfectly edible. So I don't know if anybody has had the opportunity to eat sweet potato leaves. Um, 
at our local farmer's market here when I was researching the book. I remember towards the tail end of summer when I went to the farmer's market, there was one vendor that had bunches of these greens that were piled on his card and, uh, and, and his stall was surrounded mostly by women with cultural roots from Liberia. And, um, you know, I mean, when it comes to food, I'm, I don't have any shame. And so um, every bunch was picked up and they were gone. And so I asked one of the women, I said, can I buy one of the bunches from you? And I said, what is it? And what do you do with it? She said, oh, these are sweet potato leaves. And I thought, oh, I didn't realize that they were edible. And so, um, so I took them home and, you know, you wash them and you, you know, you get rid of the tough um, piece parts of the leaves. And then you, I shredded them really thin. And then I tossed them with some fresh ginger and black and red chilies and a little bit of salt. And that was it. I felt like I was eating a bowl of candy. You know, it was so incredibly delicious and you know not to mention how nutritious it is and so uh, but yes you can obviously do that with the potato leaves but sweet potato you can so if anybody has the opportunity i would strongly recommend trying sweet potato leaves because they truly are incredibly delicious so on the green potato mm-hmm. is it something you need to throw away or do you simply peel past the green now <laughs> I don't know. I'm just asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, if I was, you know, working for General Mills, I would say throw them away. (laughs) Uh, But if, you know, but if it's myself, for my own self, what I do, again, I'm not, you know, endorsing that you do the same thing, but I usually just peel peel that part out and I use the rest of it, I think it's fine. So, um, yeah, I don't, I mean, you know, even when, when you start to get those, you know, those eyes and the buds on the potatoes, you know, it's like, oh, that's starting to, that means, you know, your potato is really old and it's generating these eyes, which is producing these little offsprings, which are, you know, and that's, and you're supposed to, again, discard those because eventually the potato will start to shrivel up. And so um, I usually, before it gets, just before it gets to that point, I usually will snap out all those little buds and arms and, um, you know, and then when I'm ready to use them, I, you know, uh, and again, peeling a potato or not is your, obviously your personal preference. And people always say there's more nutrition. The nutrition is not on the skin, but the nutrition is just a few millimeters under the skin. Mm. Um, so oftentimes when you're peeling it, you're peeling a few millimeters under the skin as well. And so and when you're discarding it, obviously, you know, you're getting rid of some of those nutrients that are there. So really good potato. Um, And that's one of those few vegetables or fruits that I will always buy organic. Um, And um, because potato farmers always say that when you're using um, chemicals, you know, that's one of those vegetables where chemicals sort of get into it and it'll never, no matter how much you scrub it or peel it, that's not going to get rid of it. So, um, I personally, I always buy organic potatoes for that reason. Um, whether I peel it or not depends on what I'm doing. So, um, I have a recipe in the book that I call it ultimate mashed potatoes. And so, for that recipe, I use a, a Brussels Burbank potato and I always peel it because 
the texture to me is very, very, very important to get that sense of needing clouds, you know, because it's so light and uh, um, I, you know, peel. But they, I have a recipe in the book where I, you know, I have usage for the potato peels where if you um, cut the potatoes a little thicker, so the potato skins, you know, oftentimes. And so um, I, I have a recipe in there where I use those and they're perfectly nutritious and and edible and delicious and got great. Again, it's a, think about it as the perfect backdrop for flavors. So um, there's one recipe where I have the potato skins that I, as soon as it comes out of the fryer, I toss them with um, grated um, rind of a lime with cayenne and salt. And that's it. But the flavors are so aromatic and they're addictive and they're so incredibly delicious. So. Um, so that's, um, yeah, I think it's, you know, one of those personal preferences of whether you like the skin or not. So when I, I'm I, one of those that when I see the skin in mashed potatoes, I, I'm sorry, I kind of consider the cook kind of lazy. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, again, I think it's a personal preference. Right? I understand. Like, yeah, it's a, it's a textural thing. And so um, I may not say it to them. It's the internal dialogue, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, trust me, Kathy, we all we all judge internally. There's no doubt about that. Um, uh, but also, you know, going back to bake, you know, when you make baked potatoes, you know, you see restaurants do this all the time. And that's in the technical sense, it's not baked potatoes. What they're doing is they're steaming the potatoes. And so they will wrap the potatoes in foil and they'll put them in the oven and they'll, you know, they'll bake them. But that's not true baking. That's actually steaming because you're covering the potatoes and it's creating moisture. And that's what a true baked potato is when you scrub it and you poke holes in it, obviously, so they're looking burst on you. When you put them directly on the oven rack, uh, for about an hour, that's what true baked potato is. And so to get the creamiest baked potato, um, what I do is I um, um, uh, take, you know, these large russet potatoes and I will scrub them really well and poke holes with a knife or a fork to vent them out. And then when the potato is still wet, I actually, I, I smother them with a very coarse sea salt. Mm. It's like when you're making gravlats or when you're making, you know, something that so I or fish for that matter. So I completely engulf it in salt. So the salt has this, you know, it forms this crust on the outside. And I, I put them on the rack and I bake them for about an hour. And then when you cool it and then you slice the top off, you know, the potato inside is incredibly creamy and. Uh, but I personally, I love to eat the skin as a snack, you know, because it's got all that salt, and I, I love salt, of course. And so, um, so that's really the true way of making baked potato is put them naked on the rack. You don't cover them in foil because that's not baking, that's steaming. So, well, my understanding is that the um, uh, the solanin is indestructible. Uh, you know, can you? Um, uh, but I, I thought you said some there was a one way or another was could lessen or destroy the solanin. I, I don't know if it destroys it again. I mean, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV either. But <laughs> um, 
I what I personally I just do it as I just peel the part that looks green to me. Wow. Ikanta? Kanta might know something about this. <laughs> if she's still here. I am still here. Yes, she is. Yeah. Are you a food scientist, Kanta? Yeah. Yeah. What do you have any do you thoughts have a thought on, on this? <laughs> Sorry. Um, specifically, what are you asking? Well, when you when you let's say you come across a potato and you peel it and it's green underneath. Yes. So the, and the, and then can you peel past that and still use it? That's what we were talking about. I don't know if you know any. I'm sorry. I know. I don't know if it's inside your uh, sphere of, int of interests. I don't know. Uh, Raghavan is absolutely right. You can actually peel it off, and most of it occurs right under the peel, and it's called the glycoalkaloids. And that's what people cannot digest because it's something that irritates people, irritates some races of people or people of certain heritage more than it irritates others. If you can peel it off completely, that's great. But also when you start cooking and you add other spices or other things to it, that sort of interacts with the alkaloids and you know, sort of diminishes the amount and it doesn't have an effect on you. But alkaloids only occur on the surface and they're preparing the potato for growth, as in you know, becoming a plant. It's not in through the entire potato. Oh, that's great to know. So I can pretend that I was smart and not frugal. <laughs> where, where, where does that come from, the green? I beg your pardon? Where does that come from, the green? Oh, the green is actually coming in. Uh, it, it's something that exists right in the potato. It's, um, it's a member of the alkaloids that the potato contains. And... By the way, these compounds start um, multiplying or becoming more concentrated depending on how the potato has been stored. So if the potato is stored in cold weather, you probably will not get it. But if it is stored in a warmer weather, that's really when these type of um, solanine compounds start growing because they think the potato is getting ready to you know, be planted and growing to and it all comes from the, um, these are called phyto compounds. So they are um, usually alkaloids. They are slightly bitter. And uh, somebody's radio is on, I think. Yeah, and I don't know whose. Okay. <laughs> if I could find it, I would. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's, um, it's nature's way of protecting. So every plant has a way of protecting itself from predators. And solanine is the way potatoes protect it, protects itself from predators. It becomes green, it's not as appetizing, and it becomes bitter. And so animals can sniff it out and will avoid it. Human beings, we've lost our sniffing power, so <laughs> we tend to eat it, and it's only after we get sick that we find out what's wrong. That's interesting. Thank you. Thank you. So I have one more question for you, sir. Oh, maybe it's not a question, it's more like a comment, but I'm German Irish. Uh-huh. And so the Irish and the famine I've heard about forever. And about mm -hmm. 10, 12 years ago, we had a speaker talking about the Germans of Milwaukee. 
and they said that there was quite a migration in the late 1840s, also related to the potato famine, except it wasn't just confined to the Irish, it was also in Europe. It's just something I, I picked up. That one lecture I learned more about German German culture than sitting around with my family. <laughs> I think oftentimes, you know, when the more you read and the more you're exposed to it, um, it, it um, it's always fascinating how you think about it, you know, food continues to be the biggest motivator um, or the reason why, you know, groups of people migrate from place to place because all of a sudden when something was there is not available anymore it's gone and so you know where do we go where we can do something again from scratch and you know we can get that so um, that certainly would make sense in terms of um, you know, how the famine affected uh, many cultures in Europe and just uh, Ireland so um, I'm not sure the pesticides at this point. I can watch out. Um, okay. Any other questions? or We can take one more question then. Yep. Does anybody have a question for Raghavan? I have one more question. Sure. On the topic of baked potatoes, what do you think of the notion of sort of partially cooking the potato in a microwave and then putting it in the oven? <laughs> Are you horrified? I don't like it. <laughs> I, I really think that the method of cooking, I well, again, that's my personal preference. I don't use microwave for cooking anything. I just use it for reforming. And even certain things, I mean, you can never really be warm in a microwave, ideally. So, um, I, it's, it's, I find it difficult to, I know a lot of people do that, is to throw a baked potato in the microwave. And so, I just, I feel it loses some of its flavors and textures, but that's just me. Um, so, I'd rather... You know, if I'm short on time and if I'm craving for a potato and I don't have the time to have it baking in the oven for an hour, um, I would much rather, you know, apply a technique that is more stovetop. You know, I could cut them into thin slices and just pan fry them. And I think I still would get that same satisfaction I'm looking for uh, with eating a potato. Uh, I personally am not a big fan of the microwave for cooking potatoes, but reheating certain things I can understand, especially if they're cut up or sliced up or something. So, um, uh, Do you parboil your potatoes before you fry them? Oh, when I make French fried potatoes, you mean? Um, I do the double cooking. That's the ultimate French fry, right? You have to cook it twice. And so the first cooking that I do when I cut them into the shape, um, I, it's almost like you're poaching them in the oil at a lower temperature. Um, so you're cooking them in the oil until they're about three quarters cooked, but you don't have any coloration happening. So you take them out 
Before that happens, you cook them at a lower oil temperature. And then oftentimes, um, once it's cooled off a little bit, I just sort of put them on a rack and cool it up. And then I put that rack in um, the freezer and I freeze those potatoes at that time. And then I put them in a bag and then when I'm making, if I'm making the French fries, then I, I don't even thaw them out and I heat the oil to almost, well, probably 375 to 400 degrees Fahrenheit. And then I put the oil, the, the potatoes right into the hot. And then I end up, um, you know, frying them the second time when it becomes nice and crispy. So that's the the right way to when you're making French fries is your double fry. Um, and so I've got, um, um, you know, that's that for that particular reason I will cook them twice. But when you're when you're boiling, you're parboiling your potato and then frying. I guess in a way you're doing the same thing. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think that certainly would work as well. So, well, Raghavan, this is yeah. actually, I have a, well, a question. Uh, I read a long time ago that if you want to make really good baked potatoes, cook them at a very, very high heat, like 450 or 425. Like mm -hmm. an hour or so, and they, they end up fluffier and more. Mm -hmm. Is that is that? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I usually I, I do mine at about three seventy five yeah. to four hundred degrees. Okay. And uh, and especially Scott, when you have that salt crust around it, I uh -huh. feel it's like you get such a better texture with it uh, because of that. You know, you've got this exterior crunch on the outside, and then you know. You, Inside, when you're biting into it, it's really nice and creamy. Yeah. So, you uh, salt press just for the top or the, around the no, for the top. So, when you're before you throw them into the oven to bake it, and when your potatoes still wet, uh, that's when I roll them in a bowl of salt and then uh -huh. it clings to the potato. And so, so, you get this nice crust on the outside. So, uh, but because it's so salty on the outside, and when you, when you slice it through and you have you know a piece of it. I feel like there's perfect amount of salt for you to taste the inside as well. So you don't have to have the extra I am salt getting, for the inside. I'm getting so hungry. And I want to, <laughs> I want really, I'm going to run right into the kitchen now and start cooking. <laughs> but I, I want to thank you for a, um, to paraphrase something from Mary Poppins, but thank you for a very tuberific, stupendous talk. <laughs> well, thank you. I've always loved coming in and chatting with you and with the group. And so uh, I am um, sorry we'll be not seeing each other face to face, but and, you know, where you would have had the opportunity to taste some of the recipes, but, but I think Kathy has got a link or something up for some of the recipes from the book. And so hopefully you get a chance to pick up a copy and try them, you know, and they really are they're very different recipes than usual, but they're also fairly quick and so. Uh, it truly, uh, I think you would enjoy it. And, and feel free, um, Kathy and Scott, to pass on my info to the group. I'm very accessible. You can get a hold of me through my website. Uh, I'm on social media as well. So, 
any question that you have as you, you know, trot along as you're cooking or you're thinking about anything, something more about potatoes, don't hesitate to, to shoot a text or an email. So I usually try to get back on that quickly. So. And when your next book comes out uh, on curry, right? It's yes. A, and when okay. it comes out, hopefully we'll be past the pandemic. And I hope so. I hope so. Social distancing and maybe you can come for a, another live culinary experience talk or we can always Zoom you. No, I, I, I love the, the personal appearance and so. Uh, and that book won't be out until either latter part of next year or the spring of the year following that. So, so maybe uh, the plague will have passed by then. I, I hope so. <laughs> you know, so. Either the plague would have passed or we would have passed one yes. of them. So. <laughs> but um, <laughs> lots of potatoes and make sure that doesn't yes. happen. But again, yeah. thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. It was it was uh, delicious. So my pleasure. Thanks again for the opportunity. So it's great to meet you all, and hopefully our paths will cross again. So thank you. Take care. You too. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.